All right. Let's pray. It is amazing, O Lord, that you would save sinners. You are under no obligation to do so. But in your eternal counsel with the Son and the Spirit, you decided not only to create man, but then allow him to fall, but then you would redeem him. And you would redeem fallen man through the Son whom you sent. And the Son came to save sinners, and he accomplished the task. And the Holy Spirit has been sent by you, Father, and the Son to do his marvelous work of grace, to bring us out of darkness into light, from deadness to life. We owe everything to you. Teach us now to what it means to walk as a Christian. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We are in John 15, and I, since I'm only dealing with eight verses again, let's just read those eight verses in John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the world, the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone is not abiding him, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, in my words, abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father's Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is a great, uh, we're spending, I'm spending some uh, more time maybe than usual on this section, looking at several of the great doctrines of scripture that are set forth here in this metaphor that Jesus gives of him being the vine and we the branches. I made the comment last week, and we looked at the confession of faith, that there, it, it is important that we understand this distinction between those who are in the covenant but not of the covenant. And that means uh, the confession of faith talks about the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church are all those, as our confession says, those who are professing the true religion along with their children. The invisible church uh, is all those who are elect, um, have been elect from the foundation of the world, whom the Father draws to himself by the Spirit to Jesus Christ. And it's helpful to keep that distinction, otherwise we're going to be confused. And probably next week we'll get into where some of those in the years past that we had to deal with in our former denomination 
in the federal vision uh, made serious, serious errors because they denied this distinction between the visible and invisible church. And you'll see where they ended up. And where they end up is terrible. So this is, uh, this is an important area for us to understand what Jesus is saying. And I mentioned last week that <clears throat> the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. That's what our confession in, in chapter 1 says. The theological term for that is called the analogy of faith. And that if you want... if if you're having difficulty to understand one scripture, look for another place in the scripture. And the reason why the reformers understood this and the divines understood the analogy of faith and that scripture is the best interpreter of scripture is because it is one. The Bible was unified. And Jesus Christ is the golden thread that unites all the scriptures. So it makes sense. So what, what I want us to do Tonight, some more is to look at what Jesus said and to demonstrate through the use of the Scripture interpreted of Scripture to see how it fits together and how it's teaching a uniform doctrine. Now, we saw that Jesus says, I'm the vine, the Father's the vine dresser. The Father is represented here as the one who tills up the ground. Remember we looked at Isaiah 5 where God says, what more could I have done for Israel than I've already done? And when he did this, when he clears out the land, all the stones, all the briar bushes, and he plants the vineyard, what does God say? Well, I expected fruit. And when he didn't see fruit, then he condemns the nation. And we're going to see Jesus does the exact same thing with national Israel. We'll look at a couple passages tonight that demonstrates that fact. The branches need much attention if they're going to be fruitful. Now, this tending to the branches, spiritually speaking, of course, Jesus is making, using this physical metaphor to teach spiritual truth. He says, you're already clean, but not all of you. And of course, he was referencing Judas Iscariot as the one who was not clean. And he says, these branches, they're clean because of what the Father is doing to them. The Father is the vine dresser or the gardener or the one who prunes the branches. And we're told that, uh, spiritually speaking, that the cleansing that basically the scripture talks about and Jesus, when he says you're clean, well, you're justified. You believed in me, you are justified. And we're gonna see that the Bible here in this text and our confession brings it out beautifully. There's, you got two great doctrines in scripture. Uh, well, many great doctrines, but these two, justification and then sanctification and Though you got to keep them distinct, they are joined together in a marvelous way. That's what this metaphor teaches, essentially. Jesus says, as we saw in verse 8, you will prove, you will demonstrate you're my disciples if you bear much fruit. And if you don't bear much fruit, you're proving that you don't belong to me. 
And this is what his teaching here is demonstrating. Now, we know that it is the Father who sends the Spirit. Remember Jesus uh, already said, we, we saw in, in John 14, uh, verse 17, he says, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send you a helper. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. And this helper is none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does marvelous things in us. I can't remember if I dealt with this, but did I deal with Ezekiel 36 last week? Seems like I did, but I'm not sure. Do you remember? Does anyone remember? I think so, yeah. Okay. I don't want to rehash that. It, it, it's where it says that I, to, God is speaking to national, to Judah, and he says, you've gone and profaned my name, but I'm going to do something amazing. And I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water, and, and you will know me. And he says, you will have a clean heart. And when I put my spirit within you, here's what it's going to do. I, I will just mention this passage over in Ezekiel 36, because he says in verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. Now, here's the result of putting my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Remember, Jesus had been teaching them in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. But you see, if I do love Jesus, I can only love Jesus because of the Spirit. You know, the Scripture says in Corinthians, no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. And it is the Spirit that regenerates us, makes us alive. Um, <clears throat> we've seen that uh, these, these branches, so when, when God, the, the Father, is the vine dresser, and he's pruning the, the branches, he does so in order that it will bear even more fruit and those of you that are garden, I'm not a gardener, but I've seen the effect. People again say, you want to have your bush become better? You want your flowers to be better off? Then you need to prune them back. Well, that, 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 you mean cut all this back? Yeah, just watch what happens when you do it. All of a sudden, you got new things uh, uh, branching out. Oh, it really does work. So God, the Father, will prune the branches if they are branches, if they are branches that are abiding in the vine. Now, there are those branches, Jesus says, are dead branches. They're not abiding in the vine. They're not getting that sap uh, from the vine. Several passages I want us to take a look at is um, Matthew. I don't think we looked at Matthew 3, 8 through 10 last week. So, so now th this passage is John the Baptist, and he's baptizing in the Jordan River. Many are coming out to him to be baptized. And all of a sudden, in verse 7, he, he, sees, he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism. And he said in verse 7, you brood of vipers. I ah, wasn't very nice, was it? <laughs> but he was telling it like it was. 
So he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. When that, what that tells us so far is that if you're not, if you are really repentant, then your life, which is your fruit, will demonstrate you repented. Without the fruit, there's no guarantee that there was ever repentance in the first place. That's the point. And of course he says, and do not suppose, verse nine, that you say yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, they were saying, hey, we're, we're in the covenant, John. And John will say, well, not really. You're in, but you're not of it. Because he says, I say to you, God's able from these stones to raise up children Abraham. And the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does what? Does not bear fruit. What does he do? He cuts it down, throws it into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not even fit to remove his sandals. He's going to baptize you with the with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in the hand and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor and he will gather up his wheat into barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know, that's an old picture uh, of the person with the chaff and the wheat with the fork, and you get it, and the way they would separate it is they just throw it up in the air, and the chaff, the wind would blow the chaff, and the and the uh, the seed, the good seed, would fall to the ground. John is saying, the one who comes after me, he's going to be a winnowing fork. He will separate the wheat from the tares. And the tares, what is he going to do to the tares? As they separate, he will gather them up and they will be burned. We'll deal with that, what, what Jesus was meaning here in a moment. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 16 through 20. What we're doing again is interpreting scripture by scripture. Matthew 7, 16 through 20. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does bear good fruit or does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. John said, what did he say to the Sadducees and Pharisees? Bring forth fruit indicative of repentance. They didn't. And because they didn't, the ax was laid to their tree. We're going to look at a passage. What tree was that? National Israel. 
That's what that tree was. And God is going to forsake national Israel because they did not produce the fruit. Because what have we seen in John, the first chapter, in the opening of our study of John is, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. He came to his Jewish people as the Messiah and they did not receive the Messiah. See, that was the great indictment against national Israel. I'm here, I'm the promised one, why don't, why don't you believe in me? And because you don't believe in me, well, just like the forerunner, John said, we're going to, put, we're going to lay the ax to your tree. And so we see, turn over to uh, Matthew 12, look at verse 33. Jesus says, either make the the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Now, hey, John called him a brood of vipers. Now Jesus is gonna call him a brood of vipers. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Um. Let's look up one other passage in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, verse 9. I hope you can see all, what these passages in Matthew are saying exactly what John, I mean, what John is recording in John 15. Ephesians 5, verse 9. For the fruit of the light, well, let's back up to verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And so you see from what Jesus taught, what the Apostle Paul has taught, you will know them by their fruit. And again, the gardener prunes uh, a tree for the purpose of it to bear more fruit. Now, I've mentioned that what we're talking about theologically, because Jesus has given this metaphor to teach spiritual truth, You are already clean, meaning you're already justified. And because you are justified, you're going to bear fruit. Unlike Judas, who didn't bear any fruit and proved himself not to be truly one of of mine. So I want you to turn 
into, get your Trinity hymnal out, turn to the Confession of Faith and turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13 and let's look at um, section 1. Now this is on of sanctification. They who are once effectually called, that means powerfully called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them are further sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and the more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, if, if you had a, a confession of faith, I had the proof text like, um, like this. Just go through there and all these passages I'm going over are quoted as proof texts in that section of the confession. That's where they got their section from. Now, turn over to chapter 16 of the confession of good works. And we're going to take a look at sections uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 16. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his word and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments, notice what, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, Stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto. Having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto Beside the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure, yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duties unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. If you turn to John 15, verse 3, as I said, Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. 
and you are clean. Now, now how are we justified? We've got to ask that question. We are justified by believing in Jesus, who is the only way of salvation, and trusting in him alone for the work that he did on our behalf, and that work credited to us as if we had done it ourselves. It's a legal term, meaning a forensic term, and we are declared legally acquitted, not guilty. So on the day of judgment, when, when Jesus separates the goats from the sheep, the goats on the left, the sheep on the right, all the sheep will be acquitted. Now remember, Jess preached on this in the parable in Matthew 20, uh, or not the parable as such, because it really isn't a parable, but the teaching of the final judgment in Matthew 25, what was the basis of the distinction between the goats and the sheep, if you remember? The sheep did something that the goats didn't. The sheep, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you, you, you helped me. When I was in prison, you came to me. What is that? But the fruit of having been justified. And the goats, they don't do any of that. Why? Because they were never justified. That's why. And that's why they will be condemned. So the 11 disciples, they had been justified. They had been cleansed. And this gradual, uh, this growth henceforth is the work of the Holy Spirit in them, enabling them to bear fruit. Remember, John said to the Sadducees, if you've repented, then show it. We looked at James 2. He says, he who says I have faith but no works, James says, I will show you my faith by my works. The demons, the demons say they believe in God. You know, a person, you know, we got to be careful when people say, oh, so-and-so is a, is a Christian. Well, in what ways? Well, they, they believe in God. Well, that believing in God doesn't make you a Christian. You got to believe the right things about God. And you got to believe the right things about Jesus. And you, all, you, all you have to do is go to James 2 because it says the demons know who Jesus is. But they don't trust in Jesus, of course. And they don't bear any fruit, of course, because they're evil. So in John 15, 4, Notice what Jesus says. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. The branches, the vitality of the branches 
is achieved only if they abide in Jesus. Now, remember, all you have to do while you're in John 15, just look over at John 14, 17. Let us remind what Jesus said. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him first, but you know him because he what? He abides with you and will be in you. And so what we see here, he says, this Holy Spirit whom I'm going to send, the special thing, and we know that to be the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit comes and abides with the disciples in a way that heretofore nobody in the history of the world, no believer had yet experienced of the same magnitude as what happened at Pentecost. Now, Remember Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. You got to be born of water and the spirit. Now some have thought that Jesus was talking about physical baptism, but I think that's incorrect. And most <clears throat> have understood it, what I'm about to say to you now, that the uh, being born of water, well, I'll give you that image. Just turn over to Titus 3 and you'll see this imagery. Titus 3. And look at verses 3, uh, no, verses 5 through 7. Titus 3, verses 5 through 7. Now, watch carefully how the Word of God states this. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There you go. The washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this, this washing of regeneration, do you remember we already noted what was the promise in Ezekiel? I will cleanse you with water, spiritual water. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit cleanses us from our filth and gives us a new heart. So what happens is this. In the deadened sinner, which the Bible, how that's how the Bible portrays us, apart from Christ, the Holy Spirit comes like the wind, Jesus says. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. But you see the effect. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus. You gotta be born again, Nicodemus. You gotta be born of water and of the Spirit, and it is the Spirit who will wash you from your sins. So what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes into the, to the life of the one who has called upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, that person now receives the power to abide in Christ. So when Jesus is commanding his disciples here, abide in me, he says, you can't do that yourself. The branch doesn't have the power to do that in itself. It has to abide in the vine. If you abide in the vine, the vine, you will, you will bear fruit. But you've got to, we're going to see constantly abide in the vine. <clears throat> what Jesus is doing in John 15, 4, he's actually issuing a warning. And it is a warning against apostasy. And uh, we know, well, first of all, let's, let's say this. Well, we can ask this question. Can a disciple apostatize? Well, the first thing we got to say, how does the Bible define it as a disciple? Now, we've already seen from John 6, 60 through 71 that when, when Jesus was talking about, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven, you got to eat me, you got to eat of my flesh, you got to drink of my blood, or you have no part of me. They didn't understand. They thought he was teaching crass cannibalism is what they thought. He says, no, what that means is, and the text is very clear in John 6. We brought that out when we preached through that. It means you got to believe in me. You really got to believe in me. And if you believe in me, you will not be offended by the things that I've told you. So, but there were many who were offended by that comment. And it says in John 6, they did not walk with Jesus anymore. Now, these are people that were said to be disciples. Now, the word disciple means in its fundamental sense, a follower. That's what a word disciple means. And what Jesus is saying, there are some of my disciples, followers, like those and he was speaking about in John 6, who got offended over my teaching, and it says they never walked with him anymore. Now, they apostatized. And then Jesus said to his 11, says, are you going to leave also? And that's when Peter says, well, Lord, who are we going to go to? You're the ones who has words. You're the only one who has words of eternal life. And that's when Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And he says, one of them is a demon. And it says he was referring to Judas Iscariot. So what we see here, apostasy 
is a falling away from the true and the living God. That's what apostasy is. Now, I want to take a look, using the analogy of faith, interpreting Scripture by Scripture to see the unity in the Word of God. I want us to take a look at several passages dealing with apostasy. Because Jesus says, if you don't abide in me, then you are going to be, if you don't abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. We already know what happens if you don't bear fruit. And you're going to be cast out. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. And take a look. Well, we actually got to look down through 6 and following down through verse 2, chapter 4. Verse 6, John, uh, Hebrews 3. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we do what? If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me, saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they're always going astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be any of you of an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For, for we have become partakers of Christ if, let me note that, if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Remember I said, let me stop right there. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, we said, how many people were baptized into Moses at the Red Sea? The whole nation got baptized into Moses. The whole nation was in the covenant. But in 1 Corinthians 10, they are not of the covenant. And this is exactly what Hebrews is saying. He says, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. And so we see they were not able to enter 
because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. You know that term, they did not enter my, enter my rest, means they didn't make it to glory. That's what that means. They didn't make it. They were a branch that did not abide in the vine. Now, there's another passage in Hebrews I want us to take a look at. Now, I'm dealing with all these passages. And let me, I'm, I'm going to pose this question to you. Is it possible to be justified in Jesus and apostatize? And the answer is no. It is impossible if you are truly justified to apostatize. If a person apostatizes, it means they never were justified in the first place. It means they did not abide in the vine. It means they looked good for a while, but then they gave it up. Well, what was the parable of the sower and the seed all about? There was some seed that grew up for a while, looked good, but when trial came, it fell away. There was some seed that was sown among the thorns, but the world, Jesus says, choked it out. But there is one soil where the seed fell on that was good soil. And what did that good soil do with that seed? It bore fruit. As Jess brought out, the parable of the sower and the seed means the only soil that is a Christian is the soil that produces fruit. It is impossible, Jesus says, if you're clean, you're good. And God's going to prune you to bear more fruit. Look at Hebrews 6, because this is one of the passages that your Arminian friends would like to turn to and say, now look here, you Calvinists, tell me how you're going to deal with Hebrews 6 now. All right, let's deal with Hebrews 6. Now, we'll start at verse 3 of verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They say, that's, we'll talk about that. That sounds pretty hard, partakers of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation 
useful to those for whose sake it is tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, I'm going to stop right there. It sure looks like, <clears throat> sure looks like they were Christians, bona fide Christians, and they fell away. Like the Armenian says, you can really have Jesus and you can lose it all. You got to, got, we got to read things, interpret words in their context. Verse nine is the clinching verse that demonstrates everything before they weren't bona fide Christians. Look what verse nine says. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that what? Accompany salvation. There you go. You're not like those. You're different because you've got fruit is what you've got. They don't. So the question is, well, I'm gonna, let's look at another passage in Hebrews and then I'll speak further to it. Turn over to Hebrews 10. 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or more, three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot of the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Oh, Calvinist, there it is. Calvinist, you were sanctified. Now you deal with that. Well, we'll deal with that here in a second. By which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of Christ grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay and again the lord will judge the people it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god all right hebrews 6 says you can be a it says in the context they could be partakers of the holy spirit and yet verse 9 says only you, we think better things to you concerning salvation. So how can I be a partaker of the Holy Spirit and not really be a genuine Christian? Well, what do you think Hebrews 3 was all about? Who, who was uh, performing all those miracles in the wilderness? With the Spirit of God. And that they resisted, that they hardened their hearts to. And we know from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, we won't turn there, that the disciples had gone to the Samaritans to preach the gospel, and these Samaritans had believed, 
and John and Peter were sent down so that they could receive the holy the gift of the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And you know who it was that uh, when, when it says all this amazing things that were going on for those who had been filled with the Spirit, there was a certain man there by the name of Simon Magus in Acts 8, you look it up later. It says he believed and was baptized. But when he saw it now, historically, Simon himself, I believe, was one of the first illusionists. He was called uh, an amazing man. He was astonishing people with what apparently he could do. But apparently, obviously, Simon knew he was a fake. And when he saw what was going on with the Holy Spirit, he realized, you know, this is the real deal. (laughs) And I want it. I want it so badly, I'm willing to pay for it. Peter, I'll buy it from you. Well, you know, that didn't go over real well with Peter. He says, Simon, your money will perish with you because you thought you could buy this by money? I understand that you are still in the gall of bitterness. And then Simon says, well, Peter, Peter, pray pray for me, pray for me. He wouldn't even pray himself. You know, historically, Simon Magus, a lot of this heresy of Gnosticism can be traced in part to Simon Magus. Simon was believed, sort of, just like some of those disciples believed that were following Jesus and he told, until he told them something that offended them, then they left him. Now they, they apostatized. So now we lost it. Uh, I mentioned how is it possible there in Hebrews 10 for it says, he who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the spirit of grace. I thought you could only be sanctified if you're a Christian. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to prove to you that um, from the scriptures that it depends how you're using sanctification in the context. That's what it depends on. Oftentimes in the New Testament, sanctification is used with reference to growth and holiness. That's the predominant use, but it's not the only use. You know, the word sanctified literally means to be to be set apart. That's what the word in its etymology basically means. To be set apart from something. How is it that you can be set apart and not be a believer? Well, turn over to 1 Corinthians 7.
And we're going to take a look at um, we'll start at verse 12. It's Paul's teaching on the marriage relationship and divorce. He says, but to the, verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away, meaning let her let him not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Now here, here's the clincher. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified with his wife. <laughs> Wait a minute. Sanctified by his wife? Well, Yeah. Well, here's how it's done. He is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Okay. How is it that an unbeliever can be sanctified? Well, since it means to be set apart, it still calls him an unbeliever. And that's what you got to remember. So they're not set apart into holiness. They're set apart. How so? Have you ever heard of families where one of the spouses got converted? They got married as an unbeliever. And yet one, the Lord brings to saving faith and um, and I've been in churches like this where a wife has become a believer. Her husband's not a believer. What is a unbelieving wife who's concerned about a husband? What is she likely to do or want her husband to do? What do you think? Come to church. Come to church. Honey, will you come to church? Just, just come to church. All right, you come to church. How does, here's the power of coming to church. Because the preached word is unlike any other period. It's not like the reading of the word uh, and not unlike uh, devotions, as important as they are. That's why the psalmist talks about the gates the road, how special the road to Zion, the church is. Under the preaching of the gospel, God does things in ways that oftentimes he doesn't do outside of the preaching of the gospel. And there are multiple testimonies of, in this case, an unbelieving husband who just comes, goes to church now and then with a wife and all of a sudden, he's convicted of his sin, but he was set apart. He was set apart by that believing wife. I've told you about my godly Aunt Lola, who's the one that found the diary of my great-great-granddaddy. She became a Christian later in life, and for many years, uh, her husband was not a believer. 
And at my Aunt Lola's memorial service, her children and her grandchildren and great-grandchildren were there and said that it was the godly life of their mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother that led Don Richardson to faith in Jesus Christ. It happens. Now, there's no guarantee that it will happen. That's what Paul says. You have no guarantee it's going to happen. So it is possible. So when when, uh, Hebrews says, how is it that you can be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and then be condemned? You were set apart. That's why the Spirit says in Hebrews 3, do not harden your heart. When you hear, when you see the works that I've done, don't you dare harden your heart. That's a terrible thing. Those people that came out of Egypt, they were set apart. They were set apart. And the majority of them did not make it because they didn't have true faith. They didn't have the fruit. Now we're going to pick up on this next week further. We're going to see what happens to the fruit that doesn't abide in Jesus. And let me, I just will mention this as we close. This abiding in Jesus, the, the uh, Greek tenses are very important. I've told you before that if you want to convey ongoing action, meaning a lifestyle, you use the present tense. You know what tense Jesus is using here? In John 15, abide in me. In other words, it's an imperative means you better keep on abiding in me. And if you keep on abiding in me, guess what? You, uh, if, unless it continues to abide in the vine, it will not bear fruit. So it is the, the genuine Christian is the person who continually abides in Jesus, bearing fruit. Because without that fruit, we're not going to make it. That's how important it is. Well, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. We'll pick up on this next week. Lord, we, we ask that you would be with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word issues warnings to us even. But we are thankful that those of us who have trusted Jesus, we have nothing to fear on the day of judgment because you did change our life. Hallelujah. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.